Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 95. This week's feature, if you like Splendor, try out these games. We'd also like to thank our Patreon backer, David. It's thanks to David that we're all able to join each other at the table. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, a podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. Welcome to the table, everyone. So glad to have you join us again here this week. We got an outstanding episode for you. We're taking our favorite feature. If you like this game, try out those games. And we're taking one of the most popular games out there right now, the great gateway game Splendor, and we're going to tell you what game mechanics and ideas from that game can be found in a lot of other games. And I should also mention that Board Gamers Anonymous is the unofficial podcast for BoardGamersAnonymous.com, so be sure to check us out there. Uh, I'm pretty sure we're the official podcast at BoardGamersAnonymous.com. All yeah. right, so we're the official podcast of BoardGamersAnonymous.com, so be sure to check us out. We'd also like to thank Double Exposure for inviting us to their recent Metatopia convention where we held an event to raise money for our Extra Life charity. Now, you may remember back we talked about this. We actually have a geek list going in which we're trying to raise money for the Children's Miracle Network. By the time this podcast will be coming out on Sunday, you may have a few minutes left, so check out Board Game Geek's geek list for BoardGamersAnonymous.com's Extra Life campaign and bid it up so you can get out there and help the children. Shout it from the tabletops! Sir, you're going to need to get down from there. Welcome to Shout It From The Tabletop. Only, guys, I'm going to give you a break. You don't have to climb up on the tabletop with me. I, I brought some extra chairs. We'll just sit around the table, have a nice chat about some of the news items that we've noticed recently, and we posted on our Twitter feed at BGA Podcast. One quick bit of news I'm going to run by. You've heard it already, but uh, film news. They're still churning out movies about board games. There's going to be one about Jumanji that I think they're they're really stepping up the pace on that. They want to have it ready by Christmas next year, or they might have said Christmas 2017. Anyway, it's a Christmas movie. And then a little more serious movie about Monopoly. It possibly will be a documentary, I'm not sure, about the origins of Monopoly. One of those games, the producers will try to convince us that it's a real game that should be taken seriously. And the other one will be Jumanji. There was a joke in there somewhere. I hope somebody got it. Monopoly burn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you go. I mentioned to you in the last show about a new trend that was coming up about pop-up gaming. Well, I have another new trend to run by. This was real popular around Halloween, and it looks like it may stick. And that's called the Escape Room. It's actually a game, more like a, a live-action role-playing game, where a group of people are locked in a room, possibly basement, and told that they have a certain time limit and they have to find clues in that room to let them out. Now, from what I've heard, literally they're not locked in, but it would be cheating to leave the room until they figured out the mystery. It's a high pressure, got to solve the mystery, and they're all mysteries, basically. Whether it's just a straight-up puzzle or a murder mystery, they have to work together. It's a cooperative LARP. And uh, everybody was doing it in cities across the country. And I'm hoping it's the sort of thing that catches on. So when you think about combining the game Clue with a LARP, where instead of trying to get into a... So it's like combining Clue with a LARP, but instead of trying to get into a room to solve a mystery, you're trying to solve a mystery so you can get out of the room. And it's more challenging than a normal LARP and more immersive than one of these murder mystery dinners I'm sure you've, you guys have heard about. The question is, do you think it's a valid form of game, a valid LARP? Would you play? Does that sound like something might be fun? Not just around Halloween, but maybe we guys could try one of those. I would definitely play an escape room, and I'd actually play an escape room before I would LARP, probably. <laughs> just solving puzzles and mysteries and that sort of thing is something that's very appealing to me. I very much enjoy that sort of thing. 
Uh, so I, I would jump at the chance to, if it were, you know, a well enough constructed one, I wouldn't want to be in one that was, you know, thinking that it was all clever and making a whole bunch of obvious references or what have you. Uh, but if it were a good escape room, I think that'd be really fun. Yeah, I think LARPs do include that sometimes as part of the game, but it, they don't put a lot of thought into it because there's so much else going on at the same time. Uh, I've been in that where you've got to find a way out of the room and it's it was bland. But no, these are well done. They're like, you know, mystery nights. So we'll definitely have to keep an eye out for that. Something that I read recently that I didn't post to the Twitter feed, but I wanted to share with, with you guys, there was an article in a newspaper, actually from the United Arab Emirates, and I read a lot from them. They've got quite a sophisticated uh, journalism team on their newspaper there. They uh, wrote an interesting article about conflict theory and how it can build leaders. And I just want to read something. This, this does have application to gaming, so I thought you might want to hear it. You ask people to list the qualities an effective leader must have, and you'll find near universal agreement on three basic points. Leaders must be reasonably confident and instill confidence in those they lead because nothing can be accomplished without the belief that it can be. Decisiveness is another essential attribute. And leaders must deliver a vision, the goal that everyone strives together to achieve. These are all three qualities that, um, now I'm not quoting now, I'm just quoting me. These are all three qualities that come into play whenever we're playing games in a group, especially cooperative games. Yeah, why is it when people act like leaders, we call them quarterbacking and tell them to sit down and be quiet? I know they're taking away fun, but don't you think that cooperative games sometimes need a leader to like, hey, I figured this out. This is what we have to do. It's a matter of how you do it, because somebody can act like a leader, can do things, can do all three things you listed there. But if they do it the wrong way or too forceful or like, hey, I'm in charge, I'm a leader. You don't need a quarterback. It's the wrong sport. I don't you know. It's a baseball game. We don't need anybody in charge right now. Um, <laughs> it. I feel like a lot of cooperative games do benefit from somebody who's kind of, you know, a leader who's done there before, who's played the game before, who can help guide people, but not necessarily tell them what to do. Because a good leader doesn't tell people what to do. They just give them the resources to go do what they need to do, along with all of the, you know, the decisive action and the vision of what needs to be achieved like here are resources maybe reminding people what's available you know slowing Mm -hmm. down the game discussing what the next steps are going to be and then allowing people to make their own decisions that's more in line with what i would think would be a good leader in a co-op that people wouldn't want to stab versus (laughs) the guy who's like go here go here go here go here why didn't you go there you know that's That's not a good point that that sort of quarterbacking, um, it always feels needy to me. It's like, I need you guys to listen to me. I need you guys to do what I'm telling you. Uh, leaders yeah. wouldn't have that neediness. No, it's like showing off. It's like, I've played this before. I know it. I've played like 50 times. And it's the reason it's so frustrating. It's like, yeah, I've played some games 50 times too. We're just not playing it right now. Shut up. You know? <laughs> You're not the only person who plays games. Children sometimes when they try to tell other people what to do, they're told that they're bossy. Don't be bossy. But do you think that this might be a way to to find and encourage leadership qualities in young people? Yeah. I mean, that's that's such a tough one as a parent. Like, when do you let them go versus when do you have to step in? I personally am, I think it's up to the kids to kind of figure this thing out. Like, you guys discuss amongst yourselves. And if you think one of you is being too bossy, you tell them not to be bossy. Other parents don't necessarily agree with me, so... If somebody else's parent's going to step in, then I have to step in. And, you know, that's a whole slippery slope. Applying that to gaming, you know, if it's just me and the child, then, yeah, it's something we can discuss and review, like, what's actually okay to share with people versus what's not. These are the rules. This is what you can tell me to do. This is what you can't tell me to do. Hasn't really come up yet. We don't really play anything cooperative on that level yet, but I'm sure it will be something that comes up. But say I was playing with multiple children and they were being bossy to each other. I don't even think I'd get in the middle of that. <laughs> Just, unless somebody was being like <laughs> abusive, I think of like, you guys figure it out. You know, your kids, this is the whole point of childhood is to figure these things out. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. There's a fine line sometimes between being a leader and just being bossy. So let's encourage the leadership. And tell the rest to sit down and wait their turn. Well, there is a, a great link. In fact, I'm going to share that link in the show notes because it wasn't in the Twitter feed. So there was uh, something that I sent out on the Twitter feed 
about a radio show called Ask Me Another. It's one of those NPR quiz shows, panel shows. They featured on one of the recent episodes a quiz where they asked contestants to name a game based on one-star Amazon reviews. It, it was a lot of fun, but it always referred to just basic common childhood games, things that we know, uh, that everybody knows. And I, I thought, well, wouldn't this be fun to do this for hardcore gamers, serious gamers who, who have a wider variety of games that they're familiar with? So I went through Board Game Geek's rating system and found a couple games, strategy games, you know, serious gamers would know, and looked over the comments where people rated the game a 1. And even games in the top 100 have a lot of people who rated it a 1. So I'm going to give you three of these clues and see if you guys know what game that these 1 comments are referring to. I'll give you an example. Now this game, somebody gave it a rating of 1. Roll a dice, roll a dice, build a road, roll a dice, roll a dice, roll a dice, get shafted because you didn't get any resources on the last five rolls, roll a dice, roll a dice. Now, what game is that? Catan. Catan, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You see, even though it's the guy hated it, there's a little grain of truth in there. (laughs) We've all been there. No, that's how that game plays. Yeah, that's straight up what Catan is. And here, okay, here's the second one. This one is a little more serious, more thoughtful, but it's it's still funny why this guy even played this game in the first place. View of one, rating of one. It's no more than a puzzle, and puzzles, while potentially fun, are solitary time killers. Time is better spent reading on the intricacies and business happenings of real life farming than playing this game. Gotta be Agricola. Yeah. I mean, in fairness, if you're going to play a game which is pretty much a dissertation on a fictional economy, you might as well just do a dissertation on a real economy. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it. Uh, I smiled at that one. That and funny. finally, I'm, I'm sure you'll like this one because this is so true. I play a card to play another card, which has me draw another card so I can play another card. Well, that's got to be Dominion, right? Yeah. It's Dominion. Oh. That makes sense. Yeah, because sometimes some players get these card building and deck building engines going and they're just, they're playing 15 cards before it's your turn. So anyway, that gives you an example of the fun you can have with uh, ratings on Board Game Geek. Okay, hold on. Give me a moment to turn a page. And lastly, one other interesting uh, post that I saw, I didn't put on the Twitter feed because it's not specifically about board gaming, but... I think we can we can find an angle. It was announced recently that there is a new museum in Chicago to open in 2017 for American writers, the American Writers Museum. And as a side note, Chicago is really becoming an awesome place for museums. George Lucas has his art museum they're going to be building there, and there's there's so many other really nice ones. Anyway, this Writers Museum, it says that exhibit design includes works that are definitive of the American experience. Exhibits will not be entirely about the books or the authors, but a balance of the two. It got me to thinking of other museums that you can set up for other types of creators. You know there's an an Inventors Museum, a National Inventors Museum outside of Washington, D.C. So you have museums for inventors. You're going to have one for writers. Game designers are not only game inventors, but they are writers also. So I'm wondering, you know, they create works definitive of the American experience. And, you know, game designers are inventors and writers, both. And they create works that are definitive of the American experience. Why doesn't anybody create a museum for our great game designers and the works that they produce? Is that viable? Well, I mean... Right now, we're just getting to the point where we're having some board game museums pop up and be relatively successful, like our uh, our friends on the Western Seaboard. So EmoGap, the Interactive Museum of Gaming and Puzzlery, right? Mm-hmm. That sounds right. And so, I mean, having some going from like the general first you know, board game museum, essentially in the United States, so far that I'm aware of, anyway, to something much much narrower seems you know you, you need to have a bigger population of interested people first. Uh, so if, as it is, I think we're going to be, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy just that we have any museum at all. 
But it would be nice. I mean, it's a good way to set up, you know, displays or exhibits, right? You could do a focus on a certain designer and talk about how they explored certain themes, etc. There are museums like uh, the the Museum of Play in uh, in Rochester. They just had an election for their annual Hall of Fame where they induct games and toys. The the only thing resembling a game that was inducted this year was Twister. And I guess you can call it a game. It's an activity, but it, it's more generic play. It's like things that you do for fun, whereas museums for people and their works celebrate like the craft that went into creating it. We'll, we'll explore this in the future, I'm sure. It's something interesting to think about, though. Everybody ha- In Europe, they're all over the place. Every country has a game museum. So it's possible. It's just, as you said, Daniel, it's just not enough right now, not enough of a population that would really support it, but maybe someday. So guys, I'm going to have to to step away for a moment. I created my own escape room. I got a group down there in the basement. They're right now trying to figure out how to get out. I have to go down and check on them just to make sure no one's quarterbacking. We don't want any of that, do we? I'll see you guys in the final round. And now our acquisition disorders. Acquisition disorders? That's crazy. Only needs the base game. Nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game and the expansion and the promos and, of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So the base game, the expansion, the promos, and... So now onto our acquisition disorders this week. We're going to talk about three games that we really want to get to the table and maybe why you want to get them to the table, too. Anthony, why don't you start us off? Okay, so I have a game this week that is not brand new. It's not even remotely new. This is It goes against everything I believe in, and I'm sorry in advance for people who tune in to listen to me yammer on about games that I probably shouldn't be buying. But this is a game, I downloaded the app a while ago, and uh, it's Lahav. It's an Uwe Rosenberg game. It's not farming, it's fishing, so it's a little different than the normal game he puts out. And this one came out back in 2007 or 2008. So it's been around for most of a decade, which is in board game terms and especially in my collection terms is ancient. But it is a game that I got to play the app of a couple times and I actually very much enjoyed it. Uh, I don't always like these sort of, you know, gather this resource, turn it into this resource, use half those resources to feed your people or lose all your points type of games. But it works really well just because of the way the game can kind of self-manage certain aspects because the grain can multiply, the cattle can multiply, and then the food is kind of just, you, you're always going to need a little more food because the cost increases each round, but you're not going to have to spend every ounce of energy you have in the game getting that food or you just completely obliterate whatever efforts you put into this. You get to do cool stuff. You get to buy buildings. You get to build all these different things. You get to take ships and it's a lot of fun uh, from the app. Now, the reason I'm really interested in the board game and I'm not satisfied just with the app is that it's very hard to see what's going on. This is a big table space game. There are dozens of cards at any time. And one of the mechanics is that you can go and use buildings that maybe someone else owns and then you would pay them. But when you have to tap each individual building and it's hard to tap on the tablet, it's not as much fun as, say, what it would be if there was cards on a table that you could then look at. So I'm actually very excited to play this on a table with other people. It also plays solo, like most of Ui's games, and that, for me, is always you know a big plus. So I'm probably going to try to track this down, see if anybody at game night I know owns it. Probably they do, um, just based on how old it is, and uh, look forward to giving it a go at the table the actual table, not my tablet. Daniel, what about you? What are you uh, looking for this week? Uh, so the game I'm looking at this week is a game that's going to be on Kickstarter for about another seven days as, once this episode airs. And it's a game called Headspace, which is a cyberpunk RPG. You know, this is... Cyberpunk is not quite so overdone as steampunk, but I'm still interested despite the fact that it's cyberpunk. So that indicates that there's something interesting about this game. And what this game does that is particularly unique. I mean, yeah, sure, it's set in the same dystopian world where capitalism has gone awry and massive corporations rule the earth without governance, et cetera, et cetera, right? Blade Runner, everything. Um, But what Headspace does that is really cool is uses the idea of a shared consciousness between your teammates, right? The reason that you are a team and that you can work effectively together is that you've all been joined through the eponymous Headspace 
uh, so that you can not only communicate with one another, but do things like borrow from one another's minds if necessary, right? Okay, well, maybe you're just a computer tech who has never held a gun in your life, but when the bad guys are barreling down on you, you're just going to reach over and borrow that 20 years of combat experience that one of your partners has and use that to make sure you make it out alive. Now, this by itself is already a pretty cool way of playing with the idea of expanded consciousness, but they also have sort of a back end to this two-edged blade. So the one thing that can happen is the bad stuff that happens to you can spill over beyond your own consciousness and into the minds of the rest of the team. So if one person's under enormous stress or pain or emotional duress, this can spill over into others. You can go so far into mixing your minds that when one teammate dies, they might not really truly be gone. They could still be, in effect, a ghost in your mind. Their traumatic memories, including the memories of their death, may in fact continue to rattle through your head, waking you up in night, you know, every night and uh, doused in sweat. So one thing that I think makes this really interesting is that it's typically hard to do this sort of expanded consciousness things in games. I think the best example of something like this in role-playing games is a game called Eclipse Phase, which is a great game, but the world is so post-human or transhuman that it's hard to really get an idea of what kinds of threats you'll deal with, right? You've got disembodied artificial intelligences that can do things like hack into the public surveillance system and watch every inch of the city all at once, which makes the chase scene really not very difficult because you don't even need to chase them because you'll know where they're going. Uh, I think Headspace does a good job of cutting it just alien enough to have some really interesting consequences, but familiar enough that we'll still be able to generally wrap your head around what's going on. On top of that, the fact that you've got this shared network of experiences and emotions effectively guarantees that the party mates or your fellow teammates all have pretty significant emotional and personal connections to one another. And that's a, pretty much a prerequisite for a, a strong game. Many games start before that happens and sort of count on that to form. But if you come into the game with that pre-built, that really can help the narrative be a lot stronger. This is something that Apocalypse World Games and a few others kind of pull off too. Uh, so that's going to be my uh, very strong acquisition disorder for this week until I probably ultimately break down and buy it which is Headspace, the RPG, currently on Kickstarter. Give it a look. Chris, how about you? What's your acquisition disorder this week? Well, originally my acquisition disorder was going to be Triumph and Tragedy. And actually, in fact, maybe next week it will be. But recently we got news of Star Wars Rebellion that's coming out in 2016. Now, I'm not going to say that somebody predicted that Fantasy Flight was going to release a board game, even though legally they weren't allowed to do so, but someone did, and it was in January, and you should listen back to that episode. But nonetheless, we finally have it. A War of the Ring-style board game. A heavy game. We're talking a 4 out of 5 on weight. We're talking about the Rebels versus the Empire. We're talking about the original trilogy. We're talking about 150 miniatures and two-thirds of the Star Wars' most notable systems in two large boards. Now, this is a long game. It has 25 liters with stands. It has 10 custom dice, over 170 cards. Basically, this is the Star Wars game that your Twilight Imperium, your War of the Ring fans, your Blood Rage people were really looking forward to. A tactical, strategy, miniatures game that really utilizes everything great about the Star Wars IP. And I don't know who I can get down to play this, but I am picking this game up as soon as it hits. And it looks amazing. There's, there are very few details out about the game at the moment. But if you go on Board Game Geek, you can check out some outstanding miniatures, including two Death Stars. One for A New Hope and one for Return of the Jedi. And it actually has the last one where it's kind of like incomplete. This looks amazing. looks like a great game. And I can't wait to pick this up. Yeah, I was going to slide this one into my acquisition disorder as well. But I figured <laughs> I'd give you the chance to uh, brag about the uh, the prediction. Because that was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> the Force was clearly with me on that episode. So Yeah, seriously. Like, <laughs> nobody else knew that they'd gotten the uh, board game rights somehow from Hasbro. Yeah. <sighs> 
More is coming, man. More is coming. There's a movie coming out in two months. Woo. Oh, boy. And keep your eyes out because next month we will have our feature review of the top 10 Star Wars board games. And now, at the table with BGA. So now on to our at the table. Now, at our at the table, we like to talk about games that we were able to get a chance to play, whether it's on the table or on the tablet, and let you know if the game is a buy and you should go out and pick up that game and add it to your collection, or if the game is a play and you should spend some time with it and see if you like it, or possibly maybe the game is a dodge and you really should avoid it, or the game is a burn. It just doesn't deserve to be in our industry and you should avoid this game at all costs. Now, with that said... Anthony, why don't you start us off and let us know what you've been playing this week. A game that I actually played back at Gen Con, and we didn't review it yet for a couple reasons. It wasn't out yet, first off. So it was a game that had been backed on Kickstarter, and it wasn't done yet. But the designer, TJ Dubner, was at Gen Con showing it to people, and it is called Castle Assault. He was kind enough to give us a copy of the game, so we were able to play it a couple more times. Uh, played a little bit with the solo campaign mode, and... The game is out now. It's out to all the backers. It's available online stores. So I figured we'd give it a run through here. Now, Chris and I both sat down to play this originally. And the game is very familiar if you've ever played Summoner Wars, um, any kind of tower defense game, or really even any kind of CCG. Kind of mixes a lot of the elements of all three of those together. What You're going to have this big board. It's a very large board. It takes up the majority of my table. Um, and there's a castle on either side of that board each of those castles has 10 health and the goal is basically to get the other person's castle down to zero health but to do that you need to get your minions and or heroes to the other side of the board and it's the other player's job to do the same thing and you're both blocking each other so it is tower defense with two people defending their tower and proactively trying to destroy the other one so it's kind of almost a a physical manifestation of you know, the life points that you're trying to drain away from somebody in a CCG. At the beginning of the game, you're going to construct a deck with at least 30 cards, no more than 40. There are a few options to kind of do that. There are faction cards. Um, There are six of those factions out of the box. And the interesting thing about the factions is that the artwork on each of them is very different. Some of it's very good. Some of it's not... It's not that it's bad. It's just it looks out of place with the overall artwork of the game because you have the artwork of the board and of all the components, and then you have the individual artwork for each of the decks. And some of it was very evocative and looked really good, and some of it was just a little, intentionally so, a little cartoony. So it's it's a little striking sometimes what you're looking at. I know that at least one of the decks we have is not the final final art that went out to people last month, so you know I won't speak to any of the decks in particular, but it was a little interesting to see how the artwork was used across the six different decks. It's kind of cool. I've never seen a game do it before, but at the same time, it doesn't bring it all together thematically. So leave it or, you know, take it or leave it. Once you have your deck, though, you're going to have a five-card hand, pretty typical for this kind of game. There is a mechanic where you roll for momentum. It's a track on the side. And basically, if you have momentum far enough to your side, you're going to get attack bonuses in your favor. It'll come in handy a little bit later. It's not a make-or-break mechanic in the game, but it is an interesting thing that throws a little bit of luck in there. As you play the game, you're going to use cards for resources. You're then going to use those resources to put different cards on the on the board. You're going to summon those cards out. Those cards are then going to move forward however much movement they have each turn, and melee people will combat each other when they run into each other, and ranged people will attack when you choose to attack and when they're in range. It's interesting... Because a lot of the decision-making has been taken out of combat. It's really just when two people come up against each other, it's attack versus defense and shield. That's it. But there are a lot of things you can do. You can buff your characters. You can throw out some effects against the opponent. You can change where people are located on the map. So, you know, because things are vertical and horizontal in terms of targeting, if you move it over one row and somebody would plan to defend in a different row... You can do some very interesting things. There are charge abilities. So if you put a card down, you can kind of rush it out um, towards the opponent's castle. A lot of different things to, to work with there that'll modify combat. But the very base core mechanics of the game are pretty simple. So learning the game doesn't take that long. Um, in the end, the only goal here is to hit the opponent's castle without there being a defender in front of it. That's it. 
and most of these cards will deal a decent amount of damage. So if you hit the opponent's castle maybe three times, they're probably down and out. But it takes a little bit of time to get there, and you're going to be building up you know, cards over the course of the game. When you run to the end of your deck, it doesn't replenish. Uh, I don't think I've ever gotten to the end of the deck, so I don't know how often that actually happens, but it doesn't replenish, much like Summoner Wars or any of those other games. You just kind of have to play it out at the end and hopefully, you know, get what you need. It's interesting. I was uh, intrigued when we played it the first time, played it a couple more times with different decks. It does seem balanced across all of them, although it is a different play experience depending on which one you use. The thing that I'm really interested in with this game, though, is the solo campaign mode. Uh, out of the box, you're getting nine scenarios with each of the six different decks. So that's 50-some-odd different playthroughs of the game you have with final boss showdowns for each of those. Uh, and the way the game ends up working, then, is that the monsters will auto-populate and then there's going to be different victory conditions for each scenario. Sometimes you have to hit the castle like normal. Sometimes there's an overlord who's immensely overpowered. Sometimes you just have to survive for a while, which is always fun. I don't know why more games don't do that kind of mechanic. There's something that there's one of the reasons I like Xenoshift so much is just you don't have to beat anything. Just don't die. You have, you have five rounds. Do not die. And you win. I like that mechanic as well. There's a lot going on here. I think the solo campaign is probably how I'll end up playing this game more. But as a two-player game, it is interesting, and I think it'll hit the cable at least a couple more times. I don't know if you remember playing this, Chris, if you had any thoughts or you know, memories on this when we played it back in Gen Con. Yeah, I think the first thought I had was it played very much like Sumner Wars, and that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. I did enjoy the game, and I was kind of surprised by that. As you said, the artwork was a little diverse. I know they had some problems with an artist, and they had to bring somebody else in. The fantasy slash kind of gothic horror element was a nice touch to the game. And as you said, the decks do play differently. I think I had the werewolves at the time. The game itself is pretty simple to play. It was okay. It was it was fine. I would say that I was probably more intrigued by the solo play. I haven't seen that type of mechanic. I think there was one scenario where there was, I don't know if it was a mist or a blob or something that these kind of the cards would come down and you had to kind of push back and just survive as we're talking about surviving this episode. So I would say for a solo game, I would definitely play this, but probably for a two player game, I might dodge it just because there are just better games out there that kind of already do this. If it was only that two player game, I don't think I would go buy it. I think I'd be interested in playing it, but I don't think I'd buy it for sure. Uh, the solo game though, what little have I played so far it feels like a buy to me. I need to play it a little bit more. Honestly, I've, I've tested this more with the two-player mechanics and the one-player, and I'll probably do a, a solo segment on this separately. Is it worth 50 dollars for a solo game? That's something I'll talk about later. But as a two-player game, it's a play. It's a solid play. And then if you like solo games on top of that, you know, it borders up on a buy. So interesting game and one that I'll be, you know, playing more here in the next few weeks to get through the solo campaigns. All right. So, uh, Daniel, what about you? What have you been playing lately? So my most recent at the table is a role playing game called Wushu. Uh, and my, so my gaming group, my role playing gaming group has been kind of hooked on Wuja games recently. And this is probably the perfection of that that genre of game. Wushu is a very simple rules light game where you have about three or four statistics, depending on how you decide to make your characters. You roll a couple of dice, uh, so you, and you get more dice to roll based upon how thoroughly you describe the scene that you are trying to per portray as a character. So, for instance, I was playing a sort of B-level, C-level superhero with a stage magician theme. So things like, you know, giving out a taunt, right? Step right up, step right up, don't be shy, right? Take a card, any card, right? And then the cards explode and all that stuff happens. Right? And every additional detail you add increases the number of dice you get to roll uh, up to a limit set by the scene, uh, which the, the DM decides. Now, you can split those dice into yin dice and yang dice, which are essentially attack and defense. And this makes it a very low effort game, that it's very uh, rules light, but it really engages you in the narration. And it also ensures that as a player, you get to tell a scene that you're interested in being a part of, right? There's no the DM telling you how things happen and you're just kind of going, eh, that's not really what I would have thought they would have done, but well, all right, right. Now you get to have everything your character does just dripping with 
their style, right? Their way of acting. Because of this, Wushu is amazing at these intensely dynamic, action-packed scenes, right? So it's about big fights, big arguments, big mysteries, all coming to a head very suddenly. I do worry that Wushu lacks some of the mechanisms we'd normally use for the sort of slower burn that you get with a long-term narrative, right? It's really got the flashes of action, but you're going to need to tinker with it a little bit to develop a sort of longer story. The mechanics as they are don't really support that. Now, they don't necessarily stop it either. You can just tell a long-term form narrative. However, with no mechanical structure to fit that narrative in, uh, it's going to be a little bit hand-wavy when you do. I do think it wouldn't be too hard to modify the system, though, to scrap some more robust narrative forms on top of it. Now, on top of the fact that Wushu was so manically fun that all of us got into it immediately, right? Barely, you know, barely read the rules at all. Okay, I'm in, and we were all, you know, laughing and joking, just having a grand old time. Some of the best role-playing I've ever done. Another thing that's really nice about it is it is totally free. Uh, So you just type in Wushu RPG, you will find it online, you can read the rules there, done. Uh, Absolutely worth reading and playing. I would honestly probably pay for it, and they do have a way to donate. I wish you could buy, like, a a hard copy. They might have a way to do that. If they do, I might pick it up, because it's a game that's probably worth having it. Uh, So I would definitely suggest that everyone, if you're even remotely interested in role-playing games, take a look at Wushu. I will give a caution that if you're not a narrative-driven player, or you're the kind of player that lets to sort of sit back and watch things unfold, which is totally fine in a lot of games, right? The sort of player that just wants to see how the world unfolds in front of them. They want to explore and see things. Wushu might be difficult for you because Wushu is going to require that the players take part in authoring not only the world as a whole, but each individual scene and each individual event. So you do need to be ready and willing to really jump into the action. But if you are, then Wushu RPG is fantastic. Could not recommend it higher. Uh, So that's uh, my at the table this week. Chris, how about you? So Hooked on Wushu, that's like Hooked on Phonics, but the next version? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I was able to get a new game to the table called Dark Stories. Now, when you hear the name Dark Stories, you expect very dark, sinister, you know, menacing stories. And the box itself is a very kind of menacing box. The description is that it has 50 twisted tales. And in these 50 stories, there's 31 crimes, 49 corpses, 11 murders, and 12 suicides, and one deadly meal. How could this happen? Dark stories are tricky, morbid, twisted mysteries. But in fact, it really isn't so much. And actually, to be honest with you... The description in the box with this blood splatter on the front actually takes away from what happens to be brain teasers. So let me actually give you the introductory brain teaser. I don't want to spoil anything else about the game, but at least the one that they give you to practice on I think would give you a good feel. The black box includes 50 white cards with some basic artwork, a little bit of color, mostly red, and... The artwork itself actually gives you hints on what the possible solution might be. Here's the introductory story. It's called Thanks. A woman walks into a bar and orders a glass of water. The man behind the counter grabs a gun and points it directly at her. The woman thanks him and leaves. What happened? Will you solve the mystery? Now, the rules are pretty thin here. Basically, it's just to give yes and no answers, or you could say it's basically irrelevant to the final solution of the story, but that's it. There really isn't any other game to this, and actually, in fact, this really is something that you can find online. These brain teasers uh, were actually found by my sister online. She played the game. She enjoyed it, actually, and then she looked online you know, for something else like this, and actually was able to find a good number of these online. It's not a deal breaker for me necessarily. It's nice to have everything packaged, but it is a little surprising to see such and such little original content in a game that you're picking up from Z-Man Games, which 
do usually produce such high quality card games. So, uh, guys, if you wouldn't mind, would you be interested in jumping in and trying to figure out this mystery? Or maybe you already figured it out. The title of the story is Thanks. A woman Uh, walks into a bar and orders a glass of water. The uh, man behind the counter grabs a gun and points it directly at her. The woman thanks him and leaves. What happened? My immediate thought is that it's a soda gun, but you shouldn't point that directly at a person anyway because those can actually have some pressure on them. Sure. But yeah, that's that's my, my guess is that it's a soda gun that he pointed at her and then he put the water in the glass and gave it to her. Yeah, so if we were playing the game and you asked, is it a soda gun, yeah. I would be able to tell you, no, it wasn't. Okay, so it's uh, an elimination. So he takes a gun, points it directly at her. Yeah, so other than it being a soft drink gun, like a metaphorical, is it an actual firearm? It's an actual firearm. Okay, so it's an actual firearm. So he points a gun at her. She says thanks. After she asks for a glass of water? Yes. Yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing either. Okay, so in fact what happened was is that she had hiccups. The man observed this behind the bar, pointed a gun at her to scare her. She then stopped having hiccups. She never received a glass of water and leaved and thanks. Yeah, that's just... Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> and then the lawsuit for a man wielding a gun in your direction. Yeah. So a lot of these cards in the game really don't directly lead to a solution. You really do have to ask a lot of questions to try to figure out what specific solution that card is looking for. And to be honest with you, some of them you'll get on the very first try, and some of them you will ask dozens of questions, and even at the end you'll be like that still doesn't really make a lot of sense or it's out of left field or okay i guess that's a solution so dark stories is a game experience it's not a game it's brain teasers you can pick this up online it's interesting if you like that type of thing please sit down and play but for the rest of us the game's a dodge and now bga's feature review All right, so for this week's feature, we're talking about Splendor, but not just about Splendor the game, but all the great things that come out of Splendor that you can find in other games. So this week's feature, if you like Splendor, try out these games. Now, let's talk about Splendor just very briefly. If you haven't played it, it's an outstanding gateway game, and in particular, what people are often drawn to are these amazing tokens that have the gems on them that come into play throughout the game. So basically, in the game, you are collecting the chips. Once again, that's the gems. You are buying or building a card, or you can reserve a card. So these different colorful gems lead you to colorful card gems that you add to your kind of like holding tableau that allow you to buy bigger and better cards that will score you victory points. Or maybe be able to win the favor of one of the nobles that that meet really kind of high-level conditions. So it's a quick, it's a fun game you can play with family and friends. But we want to talk about some of the mechanics and some of the different elements and theming of Splendor and where you can find that in other greater games. Anthony, why don't you start us off? So there are a few different things. Uh, we're each going to talk about two. And the first category I'm going to talk about is the economic aspect of Splendor. So I'm going to pick games uh, for this that are similar in weight and length to Splendor because if we said economic games and I picked my favorites, they'd be big and long and probably power grid related. So these are a little bit shorter. They're a little tighter. They're a little more um, accessible, but not necessarily gateway games. And this is speaking to the whole idea of managing resources, building up an economy that you can then use to kind of grow um, towards the goal in the game. So one of the games I like that really does that is San Juan. Now, San Juan is known for having this elegant single component mechanic where the cards equal the money as well as the resources as well as the buildings that you're putting down on the board. And one of the reasons that that reminds me of Splendor and why it's kind of a good fit for anybody who likes Splendor is that it's uh, it's very quick and it takes up little table space and it allows you to very quickly understand the game because there's really only the one thing you have to hold. Play the cards, there you go. So San Juan is a great one. It's actually in print again, finally, thanks to uh, Ravensburger. So 
it's out there. It's a fantastic game. It's good for two players. It also has an awesome app for iOS, so that's a good one as well. Uh, another game I really like is Vikings. This is not strictly a economic game, but it does have a very important economic part of the game to it. Because you're buying tiles off of this rondelle, and because the cost of them and the availability of them will depend on the placement of that rondelle and who is in front of you in the order, managing your money is very important. The game, however, though, is very short. There are almost 60 turns in the game uh, when all said and done between everybody buying all the way around this board, but it really doesn't take that long. It takes about an hour with four players and that makes it a great game to invite new people who haven't played a lot of euros before, but it also helps because you're building out this tableau in front of you. That's going to be kind of an economic and point engine based on where you place those tiles. So a little more thinking than uh, the economics and splendor, but it is very uh, similar in weight. And then the last one is one of my favorite games at Spirium. Again, a little weightier than Splendor. You're building an engine here as well, but you're also building an engine of for points and for Spirium and a little bit for money. So there's three different resources here you're trying to go for. And you're going to be buying tiles that then kind of, you know, snowball and build up additional resources so that by the end of the game, you can purchase much more expensive cards. A lot similar to what Splendor does. So those are three games that I feel are very similar in weight, length, and kind of feel economically. And so if you like that aspect of Splendor, those three are good to start with. Uh, Chris, what about you? What is the first category you were going to hit up? So the mechanic that I want to talk about is set collection, but not just the ordinary set collection, but set collection that snowballs into bigger and bigger effects and purchases. So first up is Medici. You are purchasing spices and materials that are going to benefit you throughout the game. When you purchase these, whoever has the greatest number on those tiles that are part of your supply, they're going to score 20 points and move them up the track. But that's just not it. You'll also be able to move up the track based upon the color of that resource. So as you're being able to move up that track, you're scoring additional points. And if you're the leader in that track, that's going to score even more points. But that's just the start of it. There is also another game that even does the set collection chaining even better, and that's Abyss. Now in Abyss, you are playing this underwater kingdom where you're picking up allies, which are all these different creatures like eels and octopi and crabs. And you're picking up these little allies, and by being able to put these cards together, you're being able to purchase these lord cards. Now these lord cards have their own special abilities, and when, they, when they're when they together, you'll be able to pick these locations. So once again, one set to another set to a third set to give you even more powers. And finally, St. Petersburg, whether you play the original edition or the second edition, basically in this game, you're going to be able to pick up cards at a certain gold cost that will be able to score you resources throughout the game that allows you to pick up additional buildings, that allows you to pick up additional nobles that will score you even bigger victory points in this game. So when you're thinking about Splendor, think about the set collection mechanic that actually benefits you throughout the game. Anthony, what about you? What's your second? So for this, it is more about the setting, the Renaissance era. Uh, Splendor is not a heavily thematic game. Uh, there's gems, and there are important people who buy those gems. So really, this is based on the artwork more than anything. But there are a lot of games out there that use the Renaissance theme that are very evocative of that theme and in a similar weight category. And these are three games that I really like that kind of do that. Uh, the first of those is Notre Dame. This is a Stefan Feld game. I'm pretty sure it's out of print like most of his old games, but it's not that expensive if you find a copy floating around. The whole idea of this game is that you are trying to permanently improve the influence in a quarter of the city with the Notre Dame Cathedral in the middle. So you're going to have a number of cards that you can play throughout the game. They're drafted. You're going to be passing cards to your other players, and everybody's going to be playing these cards, some of them from your own deck, some from other people's decks, that do various things. Some of them will get rid of rats. Some of them will give you money. Some of them will help you recruit people. Some of them will help you place people. It's a very interesting mechanic because the cards kind of rotate around the table and you can kind of push your luck a little bit. Hopefully you get a better card from the next the person to your right. Or you can just take the cards you know you really need up front. A lot of good things you can do here as well. But again, if those rats 
go up too high, that's going to hurt you in the game. So it's a pretty tight game. It's about nine rounds. It only takes a little over an hour. There's a lot of interesting uh, Renaissance era artwork. It's a very pretty board. And the, uh, the different character cards as well are very evocative of that era. So it's a fun one. It's not too heavy as a Euro. It is a little unique. You got to wrap your head around a little bit, but it is fun. The first of the other two I wanted to talk about is Leonardo da Vinci. So this is one of those quintessential Renaissance games because it's about the quintessential Renaissance man. It's a worker placement game. Surprise, surprise. That's, you know, my favorite mechanic. And what makes this game a little unique is while the spaces are limited, you can always go and take someone else's spot by bidding more workers than them. But you also need workers to power your laboratory. So if you spend too many people to jump ahead of somebody elsewhere, you're not going to have enough people to actually power all the things you're paying for. So you got to be able to plan your resources and your production capacity to kind of boost the number of inventions you can make. And so any game that's about managing all the resources, but also making all those cool inventions that Da Vinci you know, developed, pretty cool game, pretty inexpensive. I don't think it's you know, necessarily in print, but it is not very expensive and it's easy to find. The third game is a game that I only recently discovered and actually really, really enjoyed from right away. And that's the Princes of Florence. It's a game where you are attracting different people from the arts and sciences and to your to your estate and you're trying to exert influence and, you know, look better by attracting the smartest and most interesting people. So you're going to be completing different works throughout the game, building different uh, buildings and parks on your board and getting points in a variety of different ways. You have to balance a lot of different things out to make sure you get the buildings you need, complete the works you want to complete and get the bonus cards that are going to help you kind of boost the value of each of those. And the way the scoring works is always interesting because you can always trade in those points you get uh, for money or vice versa. So if you really need money, it's not that hard to get as long as you're completing works. But the more money you take, the less uh, points you're going to get. Combined with the auction mechanic that goes with that, a lot, a lot of interesting decisions here. Every game is very different. It's not necessarily like Splendor, but it has a lot of the thematic um, elements of it. And it's not such a heavy Euro that you're going light years beyond what Splendor is uh, for your game group. So it's a good one to pick up as well. So those are three that I really like with the Renaissance theme. Chris, what about you? What is your last category for this one? At the beginning of the feature, we talked about those outstanding poker chips that had the gem stickers on them. And they were truly, Anthony, truly, truly outrageous. Now, if those types of components either gets you or people to the table often, then you want to try out some equally outstanding components, especially in the gem variety. So first off, we already talked about Abyss. Now, not only does it have that set collection element to it, but it also has pearls and these really cool seashell cups that come with the game. So instead of just paying things with the normal kind of tokens or money on some respects, you're actually paying with little white plastic pearls. It's a lot of fun and can be a little tricky if they hit the table just the wrong way. But they're a great component to add to the game. Now also, there is another great component that comes in the game of diamonds. And you guessed it, it's these little plastic white clear diamonds. But that's not it. You also have these red diamonds that actually count for five of these clear white diamonds. They're a great component for a trick-taking game, and they really do add something to the game. And finally is Viceroy. Now, Viceroy is a tableau-building game in which you're trying to connect cards together in such a way that the edges line up, and then you're able to put a gem on that spot that will score you additional points. Now, if you just get the basic version of the game, you're going to have these cardboard gems that are actually really nicely designed. But if you picked up the Kickstarter or you pick up the additional pack, there's actually all different color of these plastic gems that will replace the cardboard gems that come in the game. They're fun. They really add something to the game and they're outstanding components. So definitely check those games out too. Well, those are four different elements that make Splendor an outstanding game, but you can also find that in a number of other games. So take your love of Splendor to the next level and check out the games that Anthony and I talked about this week. And now, our final 
whole round. Hey, guys. Guys, I just got back. Sorry it took me so long. I really had to let the guys out because nobody was quarterbacking. Nobody was telling anyone else what to do, and no one had a clue. So... Uh, you uh, told them just, not to quarterback, Drew. <laughs> I know, I know. You're making but, this you big thing Some, about not quarterbacking. <laughs> sometimes you need one, I guess, or else you're never going to get anywhere. It's um, one of those cases. So I was hoping one of them would be smart enough to call me on the cell phone and ask me to let them out. I mean, that that's the ultimate solution, I think. Um, but anyway, they had fun, and that's what's important. Final round. Funny thing, but it has to do with escape games. Because some of the the best, most thrilling games are ones where we have a time limit and we got to get out as soon as possible. The game that I like that really gives me that feeling, Cartagena. Cartagena is a card-based game of escape from a prison cell in an island in the Caribbean back in the days of pirates. And you got to lay down your cards to move ahead, to follow the symbols, to move ahead up the track. To escape from the jail before and get on the boat before other people can take all the spots on the boat ahead of you. You're trying to get out as quickly as possible. And sometimes the way to make the best advance is to go backwards. That's what I love about this game. You make a little sacrifice, go back a couple spaces, and sometimes that can give you the boost to, to really leap ahead forward. Um, a lot of fun. And uh, with everybody else trying to strive for the same goal, it's a, it's a great rush of adrenaline to get out. Cartagena. Daniel, what do you got for escape games? Uh, well, for me, it's going to have to be one of my all-time favorite games, which is Betrayal at the House on the Hill. In this game, right, you and a number of other players, depending on how many there are, are trapped inside of a haunted or possessed house uh, at the behest of some dark power, which maybe might be one of you. Betrayal at the House on the Hill, there's a lot of different variations of it, so whether or not you're trying to escape exactly as your primary push is a little bit up. But the general way that Betrayal plays, right, is that the whole thing, theme is that you are stuck and trapped in this house until you defeat whatever evil lives there. Uh, so I think that Betrayal fits in escape rooms. I also just want to talk about Betrayal because it's been too long, you know? It's just been too long. I have to bring it up again. Uh, so for me, it's going to be Betrayal at the House on the Hill. How about you, Anthony? What's your escape game? All right, for me, it is Battlestar Galactica. Now, this is a game that has... God knows how many different mechanics in it. It is not just an escape game. But the core story here is the humans are trying to get away from the Cylons. And at any single one of these jumps, they're trying to escape. And that's what the show's about, among a billion other things. But at any given point, you're trying to get away. So half the players, a little more than half the players, are playing an escape game where they're trying to get away um, <laughs> in the Battlestar in the Galactica. I don't know. It's just what I take away from the game is you feel like you're just constantly on the run, constantly trying to outsmart the, uh, uh, the Cylons. So the whole trader mechanic does throw everything off a little bit. And then who's trying to escape from who kind of changes combined with the whole brig situation, in which case you might be trying to escape a completely different situation. Anyways, as you can tell, big, messy game, lots of fun. So I'm going with that. That's what it's all about. Chris, what's your escape game? So my escape game is Survive, Escape from Atlantis. Now, this escape game is really interesting because every step of the way, it seems like you've escaped, but actually what has happened is out of the frying pan into the fire. So when you start out, you have your little meeples on this island that's about to sink and pieces keep falling away. So you run from the top of the island to the bottom. You're like, all right, I'm safe. The island starts falling away. Oh, jump into the boats. Great. I'm in the boat. I'm safe now. Whoop. Uh-oh. There's whales that are going to knock off the boat. That's fine because now I'm in the water and I'll just swim for sure. But, oh no, now there's a shark chasing me down. So I got to get there before the shark gets to me. So it is a true kind of escape, escape, escape. Just you never know when you're finally, finally safe because there is that random tile that comes towards the end of the game that decides when the game comes to an end. So survive. Escape from Atlantis is a great survival game. So the next time the four of us are trapped in our escape room, we got enough games to work our way out. That's cool. That is our final round for the week. So that's everything for this week. Go anonymous with Board Gamers Anonymous by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter, Check it out, BoardGamersAnonymous.com. There's blogs, there's information, there's pictures, there's memes. There's a lot of great stuff there. If you love this podcast, please support us on our Patreon account. And don't forget our guild on Board Game Geek and rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. Until next week, this is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. 
And this is Drew. Until then, we'll save you a seat at the table. But actually not to play games. We're actually locked in Drew's escape room and he forgot. So we really need your help here. Um, So if you could join us at the table, that would be great.